what can we really learn during the COVID-19 crisis? And what has the church historically done in times of crisis? Today, we discuss those two key questions on The Deep End. All right. Fantastic. It is good to see you today, Tuesday night, 7 p.m., every week on the deep end. And I feel alone because there's nobody joining me this week. We're back to just me. Feels lonely, but at least you're here virtually or digitally. Last week, I know you enjoyed a lot of the content from last week. We enjoyed bringing it to you. And I just hope, here's my one prayer during the COVID-19 crisis. My one prayer is that you're not getting sick of seeing this face. I mean, that's impossible, though. Am I right, Michael? Am I right? How, how could we ever? How could we ever? <laughs> but you so, signed my paycheck, so I'm obligated by law to say that. Don't tell that. them that. Don't Just tell kidding. them that. <laughs> anyway, it is good to be back with you. And I only say, I hope you're not getting sick of my face because we have, we have uh, me on the video screen for the Sunday mornings and then, of course, me here on the deep end. And then we're doing this prayer thing for our church at seven, uh, 9 a.m., not, I almost said 7 a.m. Goodness. Ah, only the really spiritual people pray at 7 a.m. But anyway, welcome in to our YouTube audience, to our FM 99.5 audience in uh, Rhode Island, to our Spotify audience, and our WEZE radio uh, station in Boston audience. And I also want to say, um, please like and subscribe. As we always say, can we put that full screen? Like and subscribe. The reason why we keep asking you to do this is because it helps grow the content and the, uh, the, the, the notoriety of The Deep End. So youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. If you're not watching there, watch there. A um, couple of reminders just as we continue through the COVID-19 crisis, three priorities for our church, inform, uh, minister, inform, and, and fun. And all of that can be uh, observed and experienced on waterschurch.tv. And uh, if you miss anything live, you can go to youtube.com slash waterschurch or youtube.com slash the deep end TV, and you'll be able to find it in the archives. If you go to those channels, punch in those URLs in the um, address box, you just go to the videos tab, you'll see all the videos that we, we have done so far during this entire uh, crisis. And evidently, we have another Hot Ones video coming up this Friday. That we do. Yes. Friday at 6 p.m. Oh, boy. Now you're putting me on the spot. And I, don't I don't know what uh, it is. But it's sometime Friday. <laughs> and the hot ones. Yes. Um, that's where we eat, I eat the buffalo wings this week. It's just me this week. It is just you this week. That's correct. And you'll be asking me questions. Very embarrassing ones. Embarrassing <laughs> no, questions. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and on Friday, you can tune in there. Now, you, I, last week we had it with my pastor friends, and I got rid of them because... <laughs> Because who, need, you know, who yeah. needs dissenting opinions? Who needs opinions? them? <laughs> it's just me, doggone it. The only opinion that counts. Anyway, um, it's just me and Michael, and he's going to be asking me questions. And I had never even seen the show. Evidently, there's a huge YouTube channel there show. Is, yeah. Yeah. I did see that there is a game show on television, Hot Ones yeah, the Game Show. Yeah, I, I, I don't know so much about that. But I would uh, like yeah. to say that I saw the final round, and the condition of the contestants was quite alarming. Really? Yeah. One of them couldn't even open his eyes. He had had so many hot Oof. wings. Is that the plan here? You guys want to blind it's, me for it's life? Possible. Is that 
<laughs> I, I will say that that we we ordered the the set of hot sauces that the the famous YouTube show uses. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I don't oh. know if I want to try them beforehand or. Oh my uh, word! Just, we'll we'll wing it. I don't pun intended. Yeah, wing it. <laughs> I don't like hot things, and this is going to be a real challenge for me. So anyway, keep tuning in to Waterstirs.tv. Lots of content. Hopefully, you're enjoying it. Um, one of my favorite parts of it has been uh, between two church plants with our executive pastor of Next Gen Ministries, Jody. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very uh, fun to shoot. Yeah, he is hilarious. And uh, so this week he has another episode coming up. Keep tuning in. Keep coming back. We are here for you for the duration of the crisis until you can come back to us. So with that said, this brings me to the Deep End News. Let's get there. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. Okay, so Deep End News. And I really don't have anything newsworthy in the news to talk about specifically. I just have... COVID-19. And let's talk about that because one question that came in last week that I really answered but didn't answer, I don't think to the best of my ability, was this question. And I want to put it back up so that we can, uh, I want to answer this a little bit more fully. Good morning, the question is. So I was just wondering what lesson God has for us with this coronavirus uh, pandemic, people going crazy. And I want to say that while I did say uh, the lesson is trust God, and that is always invariably the the answer to every question, trust God. But in generalities, uh, we don't just trust God, we also learn. And Christians, uh, I think that we do have some lessons that we can learn from the COVID-19 crisis. I want to share them with you because I think that people need some guidance through this, and pastors are here to guide. We're considered shepherds in the scriptures. We're considered guides, and we should be guiding the people. God's people. And uh, so here's my pastoral guidance for you. Number one, I think that we have to learn that crisis doesn't necessarily always create character, right? Sometimes we're under the impression that, oh, I'm going through tough stuff, so I'm going to get better as a result. Not necessarily. Some people go through tough stuff, they turn into absolute jerks, okay? So I think that you've got to learn how to let crisis shape character. That's number one, okay? You're going through a crisis. We're all going through a crisis. Maintain a spirit of teachability, a humility, if you will, to say, Father, what are you showing me through this? And that's a big part of what I'm going through, and I hope, and I'm, I'm trying to lead our church through this, and just continue to ask, Father, what is in my life that needs to go? What is not in my life that needs to be, you know, grown? What do you want? To be me to become as a result of this crisis. Sometimes crisis doesn't actually grow character. Sometimes crisis reveals character, and I think that's what you're seeing um, in our country right now. You just have to observe that there are some people whose whose character is just severely lacking. Um, I don't necessarily want to name names, but I do think that. We're seeing people who are stepping up and becoming heroes and then people who are just angry at everybody and just angry at everything. Uh, They hate everything the president says and does, or they hate everything that uh, a particular governor says and does, Um, or they just love to complain about what's wrong with our country. Look, friends, it's easy to complain. But, you know, we, we've got to contribute. And I think that's the better answer for Christians is to say, let's not join the, the cult of complaint, right? Let's be people who contribute something. Let's give back. Let's, let's do things that are actually helpful. You know, there was this article in the New York Times about celebrity culture. It was called Celebrity Culture is Burning. 
and it basically talked about the fact that, you know, in the midst of this, uh, celebrities are uh, posting their selfies and their Instagram videos of themselves in their palatial mansions and just talking about how bored they are and how much they need their audience back and all this stuff. And, and the, the piece in the New York Times was kind of revealing about how much this has actually backfired on celebrity culture. And I think that there is a huge problem in America with worship of celebrities, worship of these people, worship of the celebrity cult. Um, and it's infiltrated the church, too. There's celebrity pastors. And the term celebrity and pastor should never go together. Pastors are not celebrities. They're shepherds. Pastors should be, uh, in some ways, not always um, loved because they tell you the truth that hurts sometimes. So sometimes you don't love what comes from a pastor's mouth. And if you're, if you're following a pastor that you, you know, he, he's only celebrated, he's only beloved, he's only adored and worshipped, there's a good chance he's only telling people what they want to hear. He's only tickling ears, as Paul talks about. Sometimes a pastor has to tell you the truth. And I think in our country right now, Christians have got to look out for this. We are obsessed with celebrity culture. And I am seeing it. And I don't know if you saw that, Michael, that Gal Gadot, she did this celebrity roundup of the song Imagine by yeah, John yeah, Lennon. Did you see it? Yeah. It made me want to vomit, Terrible. honestly. It was disgusting. Uh, first off, that song is the anthem. We did this uh, episode last year in Revelation. That song is the anthem of atheism. Yes, yeah. uh, it's communism. The, yeah, or communism, exactly. And it's just like, it's such a garbage song. And there are Christians who think, oh, this is a wonderful song. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. First yeah. off, it says, imagine there's no heaven and no hell. So there's no eternal judgment. Hitler doesn't go to heaven. Uh, I mean, Hitler doesn't go to hell. So where does he end up, you know? <laughs> imagine. You want to imagine there's no hell. Well, then take that to the full length of the imagination and, and tell me where all the evil, wicked, nasty people of history end up. Do they end up with you sharing bread in the bread line, <laughs> in the celestial bread line? I mean, you got to think through this stuff. But anyway, it's... Um, it's just a, an amazing thing to see who's stepping up. And I, and I want to give some, uh, some uh, honor to uh, the guy who makes those insane MyPillow commercials. <laughs> Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell, that's his name. Okay. Hi, my name is Mike Lindell from MyPillow. There you go. You got Machine it. washable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I had one of those pillows. I didn't like it. I sent it back, actually. I did not I was like it. considering buying one. You were? No, should I not? I'm not. I don't know. Don't judge by me because I've heard people love it. Fair. Okay. I didn't like it. Some people love it. My anyway. Brother, my brother has one. He loves it. Yeah. I, I don't want to promote his product, but I do want to give him honor for what he's done. And his company has, 75% of his company has been transformed into mask creation or mask manufacturing oh, for... Wow. Very that? cool. No, I said, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, here's a guy multimillionaire, you know, successful businessman. And sometimes in our country too, and I, I want to talk specifically to the people who tend to look down their noses at um, big business. And they think that big business is the enemy of the people. But look at who's stepping up. Look at the, look at the businesses that are stepping up right now. And there is something to be said for that. There is something to be said for big businesses that are actually contributing, like my pillow, like uh, jockey and the president had several Christian-based companies uh, at the Rose Garden with him yesterday, and then you saw the haters come out on Twitter, and they all criticized. It's like, what are you? Are you just addicted to hating everything yeah. that you have to criticize the fact that the president, who I'm sure you don't like, but he had this business leader who obviously likes him. I mean, who do you expect him to have at the Rose Garden? People that hate him? <laughs> you know? right. I mean, he's going to have people that he likes and that likes him and that are contributing to the solution. And so 
I would say another lesson is look for the heroes. Who are the people that are stepping up? And please pay attention to this. Who is getting help into the hands of people? Nurses and doctors right now deserve a thousand percent respect. I mean, th- and a yeah. thousand respect, honor. And to the nurses and doctors in our church, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are heroes. And our church is um, actually busy this week. We are delivering uh, free lunches to um, the nurses of all of our uh, regional hospitals um, in the area. So that's what we're doing to help just kind of share some tiny measure of love and appreciation to them. They are the heroes. Scientists and doctors are heroes. Um, There was another piece in the New York Times, and this woman got literally lambasted by both sides, secular and Christian, basically saying that Christian nationalism is the reason for the crisis that we are experiencing now, because the the gist of the article is because Christians reject science, which is actually a falsehood, but she basically makes this argument, because Christians reject science, uh, we have this huge crisis, and no one is scientifically solving the problem. Well, first off, Christians don't reject science. Christians embrace science. Christians actually started science. If you go back in history, you will find that the Anglican Church was the source of the Royal Society, which became the roots of the modern scientific method and the modern scientific movement. It was Sir Isaac Newton and others who were devout Christians who felt that the universe was to be explored, was to be examined, and was to be learned from on a scientific, rational basis. So this fable that has been... Um, evangelized around the world by the new atheist movement, that Christians are anti-science, you know, uh, science deniers. It's just, it's just a falsehood. You've got to get the truth. You've got to get, you got to get, understand where things are from and what our history is and, and stop just listening to the loudest person in society. Uh, secondly, science doesn't solve anything. The fact of the matter is science does not solve everything. No. There are so many things that science shows us that we still don't know. That's, that's the amazing uh, irony of science, is that the more we discover, the more we discover we don't know. One of the most basic things that we all experience that science has no explanation for is love. Like, love is an unscientific thing, and yet it is so central to our existence. Um, and then, you know, morality. Science cannot explain morality. Science cannot explain why we should save lives. There, there's no scientific explanation for that. You have to have a moral compass to want to save lives. You have to have an a inherent uh, value system that places high value on human life. In fact, you have to have a value system that understands that human life is more valuable than animal life, right? Because if you don't have that distinguishing system, then why save humans at all? Why are we not just worried about animals? You know, and there's this whole segment of our society that's probably more worried about animals than humans, and they're sick. They're sick people. They need to get their priorities right. That's just a fact. <laughs> but secondly, you know, uh, science cannot solve every problem. You absolutely need faith and science working together, as it was originally intended, as it was founded. So look for heroes. Thank God for doctors, nurses, and uh, all the people that are doing such a wonderful job to care for the sick and are overwhelmed in their current uh, situation. We have a, a woman in our Norwood campus. She is a nurse um, in in Boston at uh, Beth Israel, and she is. Uh, her husband was telling my wife and I about how overwhelmed she is, and you know we just want to say um, we're praying for you and to keep the faith and be strong. You are there as the salt of the earth. Uh, then number three, my lesson for COVID nineteen is this: don't be a hater. 
like I've already covered this, but don't be a hater. There's so many people that are just so willing to start pointing the fingers. And we've got to be careful that we don't become one of them. Uh, the scripture says, do all things without complaining and murmuring, that we might shine as stars in the universe. And so we have, as the Christians of this culture, we've got to be people of positivity. A lot of Christians love to come out of the woodwork in times of crisis and talk about how this is God's judgment and this is uh, what we deserve and uh, America better get right and all this. Well, okay, wait, calm down. Okay, let's, let's pause for a second because there is this great passage in Luke chapter 13, this fantastic passage where Jesus talks about two great tragedies that happened. Number one was a human-made tragedy where Pilate actually sacrifices some Galileans on the altar and uh, mingles his blood with the animal sacrifices, which was anathema to the Jewish people at that time. And it was really like a horrible thing that Pilate did. And, and Jesus says about that tragic event, he says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than any of you? And he's basically saying, don't think that because that happened to them, that happened to them as God's judgment. Like that was God saying, you were really bad, so I'm going to let this happen to you. And then there was, this, there was this tower of Siloam, Jesus says, that fell on people and killed about, I think it was 19 or something like that. And he says, and do you think that people that the Tower of Siloam fell on, do you think that they were worse sinners than you? And he says, no. He says, they weren't worse sinners than you. But then he says this. He says, I tell you, though, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. And Jesus is basically leveling the playing field concerning God's judgment. And that is this, that every human being stands condemned before a holy and righteous God, every single one of us. And it is only by grace through faith in Christ Jesus that we are spared the judgment of God, the righteous and holy and perfect and deserved judgment of God. Jesus took that judgment for us on the cross, and if we are in him, we escape. We are spared the judgment for our sins. And we've got to calm down the rhetoric of this is God's judgment and this is what this country deserves. And if you're one of those people, I'm not hearing a lot of that, but I am hearing some of it. Uh, and if you're listening to that, it, you can become a Christian hater pretty quickly. Um, we all deserve judgment. It is God's grace that spares us. Practically speaking, here's a, this is not really a lesson, but I would just like to say this. I think that we've got to learn something that um, we might be ignoring. Cities are way too populated. Yeah. Cities are... Hard, hard agree. Yep. Yeah. They're <laughs> way too populated. I love me some rural area. Yeah. 11 million people in a five square mile space down there in Manhattan. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing on uh, New York, this is the third, third time or so that New York has experienced in the last 20 years a serious, serious tragic event. Yeah. And let us, not, uh, let us not say that... Um, what happened here? What is this? Oh, gosh. Anyway, uh, let us not say that cities are evil, but what they are is they are an exponential expression of the human condition, which is technically very evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, God commands us to spread throughout the earth. This is in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God says to Noah and his sons, fill the earth, spread out. Like there's this there's this claim it's a false claim that the that, that we're running out of space we're running out of forest we're running out of trees that's nonsense get up in the air and fly <laughs> just what, there's a lot trees. of green out there exactly <laughs> you will see trees everywhere um, I, you know I think that sometimes at some point we've got to learn the value of spreading out. A lot of people talk about the high cost of living in the city. Well, of course, because when you want to live, you know, twenty stories high on top of human beings, uh, the the price goes up. 
And, you know, if you simply move out of the city, you're going to experience a lot of price breaks and, and that sort of thing. But the problem is everybody has this idolatrous desire to be important. And what do cities technically or typically represent in the scriptures? It's this desire to make a name for ourselves. The great city of Babel, right? Let us make a name for ourselves and a tower that reaches up to the heavens. And still to this day, the cities are the place where you go to make a name for yourself, where you go to, you know, hit it big. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's always evil, but I am saying that there is a lot in the human condition that betrays this desire to be big, to be important, to be loved, to be celebrated. And we got to watch out for this. Like sometimes just having our own plot of land and being quiet and living a nice, quiet life and being faithful to little things is actually very honorable and very good and very safe and very healthy. Living on top of 9 million or 11 million people or however many people there it is in um, New York, it might not be the best option for you. That's just on a side note. Then... Here's my other lesson. I think, what am I, number four? Appreciate yeah, I, I this think time. It's <laughs> Here's, yeah, number four. Appreciate this time. Appreciate, I know it's hard to hear you, me say this, but appreciate not having your normal life. If you want to look at this from a positive perspective, consider this as a vacation from normal you. <laughs> uh, well put. <laughs> an, an open-ended vacation from normal you. You're probably not going to have a time like this again. By God's grace, I'm hoping that we don't. But I am saying that there are things that God can do in you right now that he may not be able to get done in you, uh, or at least you won't be as responsive to when he tries to do it in you at another time. Uh, Wilderness time. I got this message from one of our members, Jim Moss, at Waters Church, and, and he was talking about how he was reminded of Hosea 2 and how God talks about in that, in that passage, Hosea 2, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lure you, I'm going to bring you out to the wilderness, and I'm going to show you my love, and I'm going to betroth you to myself, and I'm going to take your idolatry out of you. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good word, like, like that God takes us out of our normal lives to do something deeper in our lives. And that might be exactly what he does in you. It's a wilderness time for the church. And I think that you've got to take a look at yourself in this season and say, what's really getting you upset? What's really getting you worked up? And, and spend some time in prayer and work those things out with the Lord. And then just learn to enjoy God and God alone. If that is one thing you can do, it is that that will benefit you. Learn to enjoy the presence of the Lord, to be alone with him, to not be surrounded by people and to be alone with him and let him work on your heart but again, you got to have that teachable spirit. You got to have that teachable spirit. And then lastly, five, look for opportunities to love your neighbor. Look for opportunities to love your neighbor. Now, right now, the only way you really can practically love your neighbor is by not going near them. Um, and that's hard. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what can you do? Can you call someone? Can you call someone and say, you were on my mind? And I wonder in this incredibly lonely generation in which we live, who might need a phone call? Pick up the phone after this episode. Call someone. That's my challenge to all of you. Call someone that the you know, Lord brings to your mind or maybe that you haven't thought about uh, for a while. Or text them and just say, hey, checking in, letting you know you're on my mind, need anything, need a prayer, whatever. I think that's a great opportunity for the church. So those are my lessons um, for COVID-19. Anyway, we have an Ask Anything question that came in this week, and I want to I want to answer that question. So, Michael, can you read the question for me? We'll get to it. Sure. Will you put it up on the... Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, <there laughs> okay. So, the question is, um, 
if God's purpose for your life doesn't have to do directly with ministry, do you still have to talk about God in whatever profession God has chosen for you? For example, does a public school teacher have to talk about God directly, or can he or she glorify him without directly mentioning him, such as glorifying him through his or her actions? Or does an authority have to, uh, oh, excuse me, does an author only have to write Christian literature if he or she is a Christian? Is talking about God the only way to glorify him? Yeah, no. Not uh, let, the simple answer to the last question is no. Talking about God is not the only way to glorify Him. We glorify Him with our actions, with our deeds. And again, back to that that phrase. And I'm trying to think about where it is in the scriptures, but I think it's in First Thessalonians where it it admonishes Christians to work, um, pay your own bills, uh, don't be dependent on others, and mind your business and live quiet lives. Uh, that's also in First uh, Timothy 2. Pray for authorities and kings and princes and all those authorities so that we might live quiet lives, so that we can live lives that don't draw attention to ourselves. There's that pre- passage in First Peter 3 when it talks about be ready to answer anyone uh, that might ask you the reason for the hope that you have. Um, Peter is directing the church not to go around preaching about Jesus. Like a Christian plumber doesn't show up at somebody's house and say, before I go to work on your toilet, I need to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that's not, that's not what we do. You go and you fix the toilet to the very best of your ability. You don't overcharge and you do a great job. And, and I believe that honors God. Um, the famous interaction that uh, Martin Luther had with a, with, with a parishioner, uh, he, he said, you know, how can a shoemaker preach the gospel? And Martin Luther said, make better shoes. That's how you preach the gospel. By doing your job better, you are glorifying God. And when they see you doing your job well, and they start to ask you about your life, because they will, well, then you can talk about God. When they ask you, and that is a huge part, I'm a huge believer in earning the right to speak into people's lives. What we have in today's culture is a culture of, I want to speak and you listen because I'm speaking. Well, that's regard. That's ridiculous. You don't just listen to people because they're speaking. You listen to people who have who have got a track. record. Hopefully, this is a practice of yours that you have a discerning mentality that you listen to people who have a track record of honorable living. Like I don't want to listen to my broke neighbor about how to save money, you know, or how to live financially wise. I don't want to listen to uh, my divorced cousin about marriage. Like I'm not going to listen to people who fail in one area to learn how to do things wrong. I want to learn from people who are doing things rightly. And, and, and Christians who do their job well are a great representation of the kingdom to others. And you will earn the right to speak. And when you do, then speak. Then speak. But don't just start spouting off. We have this incredible opportunity today to just spout off about anything. Uh, and I don't think it's helping. I think we need to quiet ourselves, do our jobs, and be the best whatever we are yeah, in 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 the eyes of others, and they also ask about does an author who's a Christian only have to write Christian literature? No, of course not. An author has to write. That's what an author does. Um, and and there was really no such thing as Christian literature. <laughs> uh, there's just Christians. Like we always put Christian labels on things: a Christian movie, Christian yeah. music, yeah. Christian this, Christian that. There's only Christians, friend. <laughs> A Christian is a person. Um, anything that's not a person is not Christian. So, like, <laughs> I get a little bit upset with that because, you know, sometimes Christian music, what we call Christian music, uh, is just, like, love songs 
that take the name of the lover and just put the name Jesus in there. <laughs> we, you guys did that a couple of yeah, days ago with hysterical lyricals. Yeah. Is it a Christian <laughs> worship song or is it a love song? It's like, yep. yeah, sometimes I can't tell the difference. Yep. So, you know, there's only music. So I think Christians should make great music. I think Christians should write great books. I think Christians should engage in culture and live uh, honorably and righteously in those endeavors. And then when they ask, then have an answer. Anyway, enough said. I'm spouting off of the mouth now. I want to remind you about seven days of prayer. Uh, tune in every day at 9 a.m. at waterschurch.tv as we continue through seven days of prayer uh, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Um, that brings me now, finally, to the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash App with hashtag TV. Okay, where is God when it hurts? That's the title of this talk. When, where is God when it hurts? Or what the church must do in dark days. Quick recap of Acts chapter 11, because Acts chapter 11 uh, comes right before, obviously, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 11 is a wonderful chapter. The church is exploding, and it's exploding in the city called Antioch, which is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. And um, Paul and Barnabas are ministering and preaching the word there. And then there is a famine. There's a global pandemic, if you will, in Acts chapter 11. And what wonderful thing happens is this. The church in Antioch decides to send a relief package through Paul and Barnabas uh, to the church in Jerusalem. And this is a very significant event. It's more significant than we realize in our 21st century age. Because Jerusalem's where the church started, but the church was chased out of Jerusalem through persecution. Remember back in Acts chapter 8. And it expands. And when it expands out from Jerusalem, it grows in these city centers, Antioch being one of them. And the newer believing churches, who are in many respects larger than the original church, Jerusalem, send a relief package to uh, Jerusalem as a way of ministering to them. So though the Jerusalem church you know, was the the root of the Antioch church, the Antioch church cared for the needs of the Jerusalem church. It's a beautiful picture of the church in action. The church is exploding. Uh, the world is going through trouble, and the church is helping each other out. It, it, the church is ministering to itself. It's a beautiful chapter. That's chapter 12, 11. Now, chapter 12 is the exact opposite. The chapter 12 in Acts is the exact opposite of chapter 11. Let me get to it, and you'll see exactly why. Right off the bat, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Okay. Tragedy. Like right off the bat, chapter 12, as great as 11 was, chapter 12 is a disaster. Think about this. Herod, this is the grandson of Herod the Great, by the way. Herod Agrippa the First, uh, And he is this vicious king. He's this vicious ruler in Jerusalem. And right off the bat, he 
kills James, the brother of John. Think of who he is, James, the brother of John. Jesus had 12 disciples. Three of them were inner disciples. Who are those three? Peter, James, and John. One of the inner three of Jesus's 12 is just killed. Like, and it's just one, like two verses. That's it. He's dead. And then the very next verse, when Herod sees it pleases the Jews, he arrests Peter. Now you got two out of the three key disciples of Jesus almost dead. And you would think that this is enormously discouraging to the church. It would be to us if, if that would happen to, like, could you imagine whatever church you belong to, your pastor and your associate pastor or your executive pastor gone? Like, that's a huge blow to the church. And, and what we see here, too, in this chapter is we see church and politics collide. Now, just, continue, just hold that in your head for later, because church and politics will always collide. Herod arrests Peter, the text teaches us, because it pleased the Jews. Now, the Jews are the unbelieving Jews in this text. Peter was a Jew. James was a Jew. And Herod kills uh, James, and it pleases the Jews. And Herod is a politician. He's going to do what makes him popular. And he's going to do it to garner um, praise of people. And if you're in the position of the church in the first century, in Acts chapter 12, you have to be asking this question, like, why would the Lord let this happen? Why would the Lord let James die? You know, you, you think about how much James could have done for the church if the Lord had just let him live. He was in that inner three with Jesus. He was there when Jesus raised Tabitha from the dead. He was there when... Um, uh, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was at all the key moments of Jesus' ministry, and now he's gone. And sometimes people that we think are so important to the movement of Jesus are just taken out, and you think, why, God? Why would you allow that to happen? But here is a thought. Here is a thought that I have for you. Perhaps, perhaps the church had gotten used to miraculous rescues and took for granted that that James would have just been rescued. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hypothesizing here. I'm just throwing it out. Um, remember that Peter and John had already been arrested way back in Acts chapter 3. And there was this miraculous escape, right? They, 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 they escaped and they went back out into the temple precincts and they started preaching again. Uh, a beautiful moment. No one prays for their escape. They just, they just miraculously escape. And perhaps, perhaps the church had gotten a little bit lazy in terms of, just kind of assuming that God would take care of this. Oh, yeah, you got arrested. You know, God always lets this happen. But, you know, there's an angel around the corner, and I'm sure James is going to be let out. Maybe, maybe the death of James has this, this, very, this very negative thing that James experiences, death, has this very positive experience for the church in that gets the church on its knees again. It gets the church praying again. Because look at the very next verse in Acts chapter 12, uh, it says here in verse 4, Peter is surrounded by uh, four squads of soldiers to guard him. And, and this is intending that after Passover, Herod's going to bring him out to the people, you know, try him and execute him. The very next verse. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That is the key moment in this text. Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer 
for him was made to God by the church. What does the church do in crisis? The church prays. That's what the church does. Maybe crisis is allowed. Actually, I'm not going to say maybe. I absolutely believe that crisis is allowed by God in the church so that the church gets serious with its most potent weapon, prayer. We need to see the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity to pray, to pray to God, pray for spiritual awakening, pray for people's eyes to be opened that they might see the gospel or hear the gospel and receive Jesus. Pray that our country has a spiritual awakening. Pray that people who are locked inside uh, tune into our online church services. And that's a big way you could help us is just share it. Share the, the, the URL, waterschurch.tv, on Sunday morning and say, hey, check out my church in case you need something else to watch other than the news. And hopefully eyes are opened to Jesus. The church prays when Peter gets arrested. The, 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 the temperature, the devil turns up the temperature and the church turns up prayer. That's what you should do in life. When the devil turns up the temperature in your life, you should turn up the prayer in your life because God hears you. And there's reasons why we don't pray and I'm going to get to them in just a moment, but let's continue the story. So verse 6, it says this. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound by two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Okay, now, this is incredible. Peter's sleeping, and he's, he's sleeping pretty soundly isn't he? Because the, 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 the scripture says that the angel has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. Now you think about being in Peter's position here. You're in prison. Tomorrow's your, you know, judgment day. And it's a kangaroo court there with Herod Agrippa. You're basically going to your death. And the guy's sleeping. Like Peter is sleeping. This is called the sleep of the just. You know, there's this saying, the sleep of the just, which means that you can sleep during hard times and scary times. Why? Because you know, your heart is right with God. And that's the benefits of the gospel. Another thing that we learn right from the text here, and it applies so well to where we are right now, is we sleep well when we know that our souls are right with God. And that's what Peter has that Herod cannot touch. Can Herod lock him up? Yep. Can Herod cut off his head? Yep. Can, can Herod persecute? Yep. But here's what Herod cannot do. He cannot take Peter's peace. Peter has peace in spite of the problems around him? And that's a great question for you during the COVID-19 crisis. Do you have peace inside? Do you have this, are you sleeping well? And if you're not sleeping well, it might be time for a heart check. It might be time for you to say, Father, why am I so tied to this world? Like, why am I so beholden to what this world can offer me that the moment that my life gets a little bit shaken from the norm, the moment that I experience the unpredictable, suddenly I can't sleep, suddenly I'm worried, suddenly I'm stressed, suddenly I'm agitated and irritated and all this stuff. What is this moment revealing about your character or your standing with God? Maybe it's time for you to settle some scores here with yourself. 
to take in some inventory spiritually and say, Father, may my ultimate trust be in you alone. May I be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like that is in the text. <laughs> that is in the Bible. To die is gain. To die is gain. And maybe this is a great season for the church. And I'm talking to the church now. If you're not a Christian, you feel free to ignore what I'm saying. But if you're a Christian, this is a chance for you to ask yourself that question legitimately. If I die, do I really consider that gain? <laughs> I mean, I know we don't like to talk about death. We like to avoid death. People hate going to funerals. They hate, they hate even thinking about the hospital. They hate, well, guess what? God has now put this on the front and center stage of our attention, and we've got to th think about it. And hopefully, as you think about it, you're starting to examine some things in your heart that, am I ready to let go? And I'm not, I'm not suggesting you live, like, suicidal. No, that's, that's, the, that's the devil's idea of to die is gain. The Christian's idea of to die is gain is to say, Lord, whatever happens, I know where I'm going. I know you're in me, and I'm in you, and I'm safe in Jesus. And that's, that's how you sleep well at night. When you're not so in love with this age that the thought of losing it or the thought of it being taken from you, even momentarily, like such as right now, does not literally upend your spirit, that you have, you have a deeper trust in God. Anyway, that's what Peter has here. Verse 9. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. But when he had passed the first and second guard... They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter's pretty much out of it. <laughs> he doesn't know what the heck is going on. Um, this is the power of prayer. What happens? The church prays. God, God hears and responds, and and he does this whole thing, and no one is even aware that God is doing this. Like, Peter's hardly even aware of it. That's what happens when we pray. When we pray, God goes to work, even in ways we cannot see. You see, we'll get, again, we're going to get to why we don't pray. That's one of the reasons why we don't pray, because we don't see something happen immediately. Well, just because you don't see something happen immediately, it doesn't mean that your prayers are ineffective, okay? You've got to learn to pray through the season of time that God allows your prayers to start and then finally sees your prayers answered. And that time frame, I'll tell you, that can be frustrating for some people, but don't let the patience of God in answering your prayers cut you off from praying to God, okay? Verse 12, uh, here's what it says. When he realized this, he went out to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and John Mark, he's going to become a partner of Paul's ministry in just a moment. But anyway, where many were gathered together and were praying. There they are praying. They're still praying. What are they praying for, by the way? They're praying. This is, this is highly ironic. This is where the text actually kind of gets funny. They're praying for Peter, who is in prison. Now, look at what happens next. And he knocked at the door of the gateway a servant girl named Rhoda. And, and I feel so bad for Rhoda here. There are no little girls in the world named Rhoda. Do you know why? <laughs> because of this moment right here. Poor Rhoda. She lives in infamy as this woman. Look, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not 
not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Like, Rhoda, open the door. <laughs> you know, that's to me, it's like, this is why nobody is named Rhoda today. Anyway, moving on, verse 15. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. The, the scripture is so funny sometimes. And when they opened, they saw him, and notice what it says, and they were amazed. They were amazed. Okay, stop there for a moment. Here's why I love this story. Even the early church struggled to believe that God would answer their prayers. They're, they're praying for Peter's release. They're praying, oh, God, please rescue Peter from prison, Lord, just open those prison doors or send your angels like you did back in Acts chapter 12, 4, even though it wasn't called Acts chapter 4 for them, but you know, like you did before and you let, set them free. Oh, Lord, do it. And he does it. And, and they don't even believe that he did it. Like, doesn't that help you out with your prayer life? Like sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm like this. You're praying and you, as you're praying, you can kind of like feel it in your mind that you're not sure God's actually going to do it. Like you're, you're praying it, but you're not sure it's going to happen. And even when it does happen, you're kind of shocked that it does. Sometimes it can be just like that. And here's what I love about this passage, because this is what it teaches us. It teaches us that just because um, we might not believe that God is answering our prayer, uh, it doesn't necessarily negate God from answering our prayer. So Pray. Keep praying. Keep praying. And anyway, verse 17, he motioned with his hand to be silent, uh, and he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James. Now, who's that James? That's not James, the one that was just beheaded, obviously. That's James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, who will become the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He shows up later in the book of Acts. But anyway, then he departed and went to another place. Okay, here's the thought. Keep praying, and when things get worse, pray harder. That, that's the main thought that I have from this text. Keep praying, and the worse things get, the harder, not, not the less, the harder we should pray. So let me, that brings me to this. Four things that keep us from praying. Four things that keep us from praying. And, and in the COVID crisis, this is a good lesson for all of us. Number one, our search in other sources for answers to our prayer. Sometimes I think we believe 10 minutes of prayer will not do as much as 10 minutes on Google <laughs> or 10 minutes on Facebook or 10 minutes searching the web or 10 minutes complaining or 10 minutes talking to somebody else about our problem. We, we've got a heart issue there. We immediately go to some other source. You know, this is why, you know, alcoholics, they go to alcohol or, or, or whatever. There's, this, there's these escapes that we go to when problems arise, you gotta watch out for that. Where, what, what are the things when you're triggered in life that you go to as an outlet or as a, a healing in your life? Sometimes when crisis comes in, it's a chance for us to ex examine that in our own hearts. Are, are you going straight to Facebook every single morning? Are you going straight to the news? Like, you gotta watch out for this because your heart is at stake here. What are you filling yourself with right from the moment that you wake up in the morning, right before you go to bed? Watch out for this. Spend some time with the Lord. Again, it doesn't have to be long, but it should be there. You know, early, early in the morning, I rise and seek you, the psalmist says, and late at night, I lie in my bed and I think about you. The, to, to get into the habit of letting prayer be the first thing that we, we go to in our times of crisis. Then secondly, I think our sin is something that keeps us from praying. And what I mean by that is this. Some of you feel so guilty you can't talk to God. Well, 
That's why the Lord instructs us in the Lord's Prayer to say, forgive us our debts, to, to confess our sins. And, 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 and 1 John says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I mean, we need to remember this. That's not, sin is not an impetus to pray. Sin is a reason to pray. Uh, sin, I'm sorry, sin shouldn't, uh, shouldn't hold us back from praying. Sin should cause us to pray. Because when we sin, we know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who bore our sins on the cross. He is the final sacrifice. Now think about in the Old Testament, they had to offer sacrifices at the golden altar before they went past that uh, piece of furniture to burn incense and to offer praise to God and then to pray to him. Well, in the new covenant, we first confess our sins to Jesus and we receive cleansing and forgiveness. And then we enter into the holy place to ask him for our needs. This, this, these pictures in the Old Testament are realities in the New Testament, but they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the final sacrifice for our sins. So of course we pray when we sin because he's the one who solved the sin problem. Don't let your guilt hold you back. Don't let your shame hold you back. Jesus took care of that. The scripture says in Hebrews that we, we boldly approach the throne of grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who went through the heavens and brought the perfect sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of his blood. So we have access into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking. Third is God's slowness. And I just talked about this. Like God takes time in answering our prayers. And slowness is as we understand it. I think about that great movie, Rudy. Have you ever seen the Moody movie, Rudy? Like that great movie about that guy who wants to be the Notre Dame football player. And so his whole life is about being a football player. And, and he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. And he goes to the priest and he asks this priest, he says, have I prayed enough? And I don't understand why God's not answering my prayers to be on the football team. And the priest, wonderful character in the, in the movie says, you know what I've learned in in whatever, 30 years of being, you know, a theologian is this, that we pray in our time, but God answers in his time. And that's just a fact. We pray in our time, but God answers in his time. Ecclesiastes 3 to 11. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And sometimes when God says no, we've got to learn how to trust that. And sometimes when God says slow, like not now, like wait, we've got to learn to trust that so that we understand his timing makes things beautiful. Uh, then, it says, uh, number four, is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty uh, keeps us from praying. And you say, what? And I say, like, listen to me for a second. <laughs> Sometimes we think as Christians, God's going to do what he wants. He's sovereign. So why pray? You're like, oh, that's a horrible understanding of sovereignty, first of all. Sovereignty means that God is overall. It doesn't mean he does everything. Like he doesn't manipulate every situation. He's not a micromanager. He's, so, he's, he's in charge, but he doesn't, he doesn't always make every little thing happen. There are many passages in the Bible where God changes his mind. There's, a, there's this passage in, in, in the scriptures uh, where Hezekiah is told that he's going to die of an illness. And, and the scripture says in 2 Kings that he turns his face to the wall and he prays passionately, and he rends his garment, and, and as Isaiah is walking out the door of the palace, God comes back to Isaiah and says, go back and tell him he's going to live because of the way he just prayed. And God changed his mind about um, Hezekiah's future because of Hezekiah's prayer. There's another passage, very famous passage in Jonah, uh, chapter 3, when Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh finally after being vomited out of the whale, and he goes to the city, and he says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed, and the whole city repents, and God changes his mind toward the city. Sometimes our prayers can change God's mind. 
Don't let this faulty understanding of God's sovereignty stop you from praying. When things get harder, sometimes God is looking to you to, to pray harder, to, to deepen your trust in him and not other things. Anyway, back to the text. Verse 18 says this. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So he goes on vacation. <laughs> he basically kills everybody else and goes on vacation. Now, the text changes tune in verse 20. Look what happens next. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, uh, they asked uh, for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Okay, Acts chapter 12 is a dark chapter. First, Herod is about to kill Peter. He's already killed James. And now in chapter, in verse 20, Herod is praised as this, this God. And he, on, on the surface, in Acts chapter 12, it looks like Herod is in charge. But what are we seeing as the people of God, as we read through this history now 2,000 years later, what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to share with us? What we see under the surface is what, what things that we see are not as they seem. God is working behind the scenes. First off, letting Peter out of prison. And now, in the middle of this great oration of Herod, where it looks like he is this celebrated hero of society, what happens? Very next verse, verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. By the way, this moment is attested to in historical records outside of the Bible by a guy named Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century. But anyway, what you see in the scriptures literally did happen. But the word of God, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, in one chapter, we have Herod, this, po this politician, this leader, this king, this this guy who does things to please the people. All along the way, he looks like he's in charge. The church is on the brink of disaster. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Uh, there's a worldwide famine. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, we have the wonderful benefit of hindsight, and we know the rest of the story. But I don't want us to miss this very important point. What's the hinge verse of the entire chapter in Acts chapter 12? Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter was kept in prison. That's how it started. That's how, like up to that moment. Bad, 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 bad. Right? But earnest prayer. That's the hinge. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, the power of prayer. Prayer is the hinge of history. It's the thing on which historical doors open and close. Don't miss the lesson from Acts 12, when things look bad, as they currently do, as you might be feeling inside your spirit, in your mind, in your family, in your home right now, this is a moment. Maybe God is shaking you to a more, more uh, prioritized and passionate and fervent prayer life to see God's power work. 
And it might not happen tomorrow. And it might not happen in three weeks. And it might not happen in eight weeks. I don't know. But it doesn't mean that God isn't working. And that is a huge lesson for us right now. I have always said this to our church, and I say it again. I think the the prayers that I pray as seeds that go into the ground, the ground of my future, right? The ground of your future. The prayers that you're praying today are like seeds. And so it'll go down and it'll sink down and you might even forget that they're there, but they're going to germinate. They're going to, they're going to sprout and they're going to produce fruit. One of, one of the things that I've prayed over my children since birth I sneak into, when they were small children, I would sneak into their bedrooms and I would lay my hands on their heads and I would say, Father, I pray that they become mighty men and women of God in their generation. I, I would pray that on a regular basis. I just saw that as planting seeds in their future. What are you doing to plant prayer seeds right now in this time of crisis so that when this is over, you got some sprouts to look forward to. You got some fruit. You got some trees. You got some benefits that God's going to pour in your life. That's my thought. So what do we learn from this chapter about the church? We learn that problems and pain go hand in hand with progress in the work of Jesus. <laughs> they just do. Okay, the church did great in Acts chapter 11, but then there's problems in Acts chapter 12. And it's not going to end. Like there's going to be good times and bad times. And we don't give up in the bad times. We press on. Because over the arc of history, the church gets better and bigger and farther and uh, wider and uh, uh, more successful than ever. Number two, we learned that politics is powerless against the gospel when, number three, prayer is offered intensely by the church. Like those, so those two points go together. Like right now, it's a, uh, one very annoying thing for me is how this crisis is now getting politicized by both sides. And it's like, why can't we just not be political for a moment? And why why can't we just fight together? Well, that's always going to be the case in a country filled with sinners. We're always going to blame. We're always going to do that. We, the church, have got a better solution. Let's pray. Let's, Let's intensely pray for God to do his work through this crisis and to make us, his church, a better testimony to the power of the gospel, to the power of Jesus Christ. So whether we're plumbers or lawyers or janitors or uh, stay-at-home parents or whatever we are, Christ is exalted and people see us and one day ask us, what is it about you? And we will have the answer. We will have the answer. And the answer is Jesus. Amen? Okay, that's today's episode. I hope and trust that this was a blessing to your life and the time that you spent with me was worth it. Always like and subscribe on youtube.com slash the deep end TV. We Need you to go there, need you to watch there, need you to subscribe. You'll get notified on your smartphone devices that we are live. But that brings us to the end of this episode, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow morning for prayer at 9 a.m., but next week, especially Tuesday night, 7 p.m., on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch. All right.